0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. We've got a little bit of a different show planned for you today. Jason Hall and I will be talking about
1: what we've learned about investing from college football. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the show, as always. Really looking forward to this, and, and anybody that's not a sports fan, I encourage you to still listen, um, mainly to hear me poke fun at Nick, but also because there are some really, really interesting um, uh, parallels I think we've we've found from, uh, from, from our experiences with college football and investing.
0: Well, I think these are both industries that are over 100 years old, both that are incredibly competitive, both that have strategies and styles that evolve over time. Uh, there's a little bit of a metagame that goes on in both investing um, and college football. So, I really think that there's a lot to learn, both in how industries progress, how people learn over time and strategies evolve, and just how to run an organization. People forget that a football coach, you're running a team that can involve hundreds of people, not not just including your players, but your staff. And so, a lot of the uh, the issues that are, that are important to leading a business organization are also paralleled in college football. So, without further ado, let's get into some of these, these parallels that we see. Jason, what, what's your first topic about investing that college
1: football helped you learn more about? Uh, number 1, uh, without a doubt, is load up with talent. You know, more talent. Uh, means a better chance of success. So I think as an organization, you know, you you want to try to hire the most talented people. If you look at uh, college football programs, the ones that have historically been the most successful are the ones that made getting the most talented players a priority. I think as an investor, the way you carry that over is find the you know the best businesses, the ones that have a track record of really really high performance, the ones that have the best margins in their industry, that have the most growth, that have a history of creating market share there's just so many things that tie over to loading up with talent. Right, well, and recruiting
0: is helped by having a really great brand. So for example, you know, I'm an Alabama football fan. I went to College at Alabama. Alabama has a history uh, as a great college football program. And if you're a great uh, high school football player, they're going to be on the short list of places that you want to go uh play football for. And I think you can look and see these examples in other areas of the world as well. I think about in tech, if I if I'm a tech uh uh person coming out of college or a programmer or that sort of thing, that one of the first companies that comes to mind for me is Apple. It's this great, impressive brand I really have great positive feelings about. And that gives Apple a huge advantage in recruiting talent. And at the end of the day, people are who design these products, people are who come up with these innovations. And if you can get a greater access to people than your competitors, then you're in a position to succeed. And I think this ties into one of the issues that I called out is that Recruiting is really, really important. It does it if you ha- you could have someone at the head of your organization who is a legitimate genius, and I think we can see an example of that right now. Chip Kelly is at UCLA. He really revolutionized uh, offense in college football and helped revolutionize offense in the NFL when he came to the Eagles. But he's really struggled at UCLA the past couple of years. Partially because he just doesn't have the players necessary uh, to 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 have the success that he might have had at the past in the past, and so if you can't recruit talent in order to execute on your vision, maybe you're maybe you're someone who's very difficult to work with. Uh, who knows? Then you won't be in a position to succeed, and so it, you can never forget how important recruiting is, not just in sports uh, but in business as well.
1: Yeah, I think a, a parallel to that that's really close to my to my own heart. Is you look at you look at Georgia, Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, lived in Athens for many many years. My wife's a UGA graduate, and um, w- when uh, their current head coach Kirby Smart was brought over, Kirby graduate from the University of Georgia, and uh, really developed as a as a coach under uh, the dreaded Nick Saban, uh, who I have to say I have a lot of respect for. Um, he's proven he's proven that recruiting was a key piece of the process. For building the University of Georgia's football program, in the you know the four or five years since since Smart has been there, and it, it carries over in the results, right? Which ties into the next thing is for me is process over outcome, particularly in the short come. It's so easy to you know, think about buying stocks, right? You get so caught up in the results of what your stock does, especially in short periods of term, and it can be. Periods of time, it can be really, really misleading, right? It can, it can cause you to think maybe, maybe I have some innate gift at picking stocks, right? Because you buy a stock and three months later it's gone way up, right? And it was just luck, you know, it was completely outside of, outside of anything that you necessarily controlled. So by developing a good process, and again, part of George's process has been heavily built on recruiting the best players. The first season Kirby Smart was there. The team went seven and six. It was massively disappointing. The roster was relatively loaded, but it was just a really, really bad season, partially because of luck. Right, they had a lot of injuries and you know a few things that that happened. Uh, But now you fast forward over the past several years, and and this Georgia program has been immensely successful. I mean, it hasn't reached the, the the highest echelon of winning a national championship, but I think just by just about any other measure, it's been very, very successful because. The leadership is focused on developing a process to attract great talent, to get that talent coached up, get it ready to perform, and then maximizing the performance of the, of the product that they put on the field. And it carries over the same way in, in business, right?
0: Yeah, I think fundamentally the biggest thing that college fo- and I can skip to the biggest thing that the college football taught me about it about investing is absolutely that it's it's the process and that's Nick Saban's trademark. That's the way he runs his organization. If you look at his very first speech when he came to the University of Alabama, I mean, gosh, that you could you could put that type of speech at, at, at a lot of organizations and it would fit in well. And what he came out and said is, "Listen, we're going to achieve a lot of great things, but when you hear me talk about what we're going to do, we're not going to talk about winning national championships. We're going to talk about the things that we need to do to get there. We're going to talk about the process that we need." To follow to take place. And that is each player understanding their job, their role in the organization, how they fit in, what they need to do uh, to be successful. And I think that's important for lots of these organizations. So, if you come out here and say, we're going to dominate this market, that is much less interesting to me as an investor than someone to come out and say, this is how we're going to do it. You can look at the example of Jeff Bezos, you can look at their very first letter from Amazon.com that said, we're going to focus on long-term results over the short-term, we're going to prioritize free cash flow over accounting earnings, and this is the framework that we're going to follow to achieve these great goals of being the premier online seller in the world. And yeah. you could have looked at that process day one and checked it against their <laughs> actions and, and tracked the company all the way through. And I think that is why Jeff Bezos is, is a a founder you can really get behind because you can you can see what they're trying to accomplish and, and see the process that they're following.
1: Yeah, and for me that comes to I think the things that that I've learned is probably the most important things for me as an investor, and that's that temperament and time are the great equalizers, right? Uh, if if you think about uh, the way the financial media tends to follow companies, it's this really churn and burn. We we look at every quarter. That's you know the news cycle follows the quarterly earnings and that sort of stuff. And we honestly we learn so little about a company from one quarter to the next. Uh, it can be really 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 challenging. So and you think about you know carrying that over to what I've learned how how I've I've learned from watching college uh, football uh, the best coaches. Uh, are, are kind of like Warren, Warren Buffett, right? They have they, they focus on long term. They have immense immense mental flexibility, right? And and this ability to have a process, but then acknowledge sometimes sometimes you know, the facts have changed. Sometimes you need to change that you change that process. I know Nick, you've got an interesting story about that for college uh, football. You can share before you do that. I want to share my my Buffett example. You know, this is somebody that's been incredibly successful for five decades. You go back 20 years ago, you know, during the dot com. Run up and uh, Buffett, you know, he, he avoided tech stocks. Um, and he said it was because he couldn't value the companies and didn't understand most of them. And the reality is, nobody could <laughs> value them back then because they weren't, you know, earning anything. Uh, but that changed, you know, a few years ago with Apple. And and uh, yeah, Berkshire's made a massive bet on Apple, and something like half of, half of Berkshire's capital gains in its stock portfolio. Uh, Or from the enormous bet the company's made on a tech stock, right? And that's that's paying off.
0: Yeah, I I think in sports, just like in investing, the ability to adapt over time is the key to having success over multiple decades. You look at Warren Buffett, started out as a classical Ben Graham-style investor, evolved to more of a a, someone who would buy a company and hold it for a long period of time, buy quality uh, at a reasonable price instead of buying companies on the cheap, and that's how he's been able to have success over a long period of time. And You see these same patterns in sports among even uh, some of the best uh, coaches and leaders. So I think one great example Another Alabama football example is the story of Bear Bryant. Everybody remembers Bear Bryant as one of the best college football coaches of all time. Well, towards the end of the 1960s, Alabama had really fallen off. The last two years of the 1960s, I believe they'd lost five games or more, and both of those seasons had been shut out for their first time in more than a decade. The team was really in a position where they they thought that the best days of Alabama football were behind them. And over the summer of 1970, uh, when they were, when Alabama was getting ready for the season, Bear Bryant one day walked into his coach's room and went up to the other coaches, drew a, drew a bunch of formations on, on the blackboard and said, guys, listen, we have the best running back in the country in Johnny Musso. We've got a quarterback who, listen, can't throw the ball, uh, but he can run the option. To win games this year, we're going to have to run the ball to win, and the best way uh, to run the ball and win successfully in college football today is to run the wishbone offense. So over the summer, uh, Bear Bryant and Alabama secretly installed uh, the wishbone offense. This is a time when uh, uh, you know the media was very different, and you could uh, somehow keep a secret from reporters for months and months and months, and install an entire, entire. Uh, offense and they came out in the 19 19- I don't think
1: Twitter existed yet
0: that's true it was a different right. game right. It was a different game uh, and anyway they came out in the 1971 season went 11 and one almost won the national championship through the course of the 1970s went 101 16 and one and that's all because uh, Bear Bryant you know, one of the great uh, leaders in the history of the sport realized that what I was doing wasn't working and adapted his strategy, and that willingness to to disrupt yourself, to go away uh, from the things that have worked for you in the past is difficult to do, but in order to have success over many decades, is necessary. The metagame of investing changes over time, um, and you need to be able to adapt, uh, just like how the metagame of college football evolves over time. And Nick Saban is another example of someone who's evolved. If you look at Alabama when he first got there in 2009, very much a running offense, and they brought in Lane Kiffin, and now they're running the spread uh, with Tua. I think you see this among all great leaders, their ability to adapt, and that's how you maintain a competitive advantage over decades versus having an innovation sticking around until that gets competed away and then just becoming one of, of the pack.
1: Yeah, I think we can look at two two companies that kind of did things very differently as examples of how how um, being able to adapt and also really taking it to the next step step of being a visionary can 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 in fact impact a company. So we think about Netflix, right? This is a company that essentially put Blockbuster video out of business, that put the dominant deliverer of <coughs> video entertainment, recorded video entertainment. Out of business um, by just doing it, doing it better, right, and by thinking about it better. And then, kind of at the peak of of still being like the dominant provider of sending out DVDs and stuff through the mail, right, through this this where they really controlled this market. The company pivoted. Some would say they pivoted too quickly to to delivering uh, streaming content before streaming was even close to being mainstream. Of course, the stock, you know, fell sharply, sharply as as a result of some of those. Some of those things, but you look back at it today with hindsight, and there's there's no doubt that 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 uh, that um, what's uh, Netflix's uh, CEO's Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings that Hastings' visionary leadership has has been transformative right this is a company the stock since since the quickster debacle that we now look back on is like this visionary smart move to really focus on streaming i think the stock's probably a 20 25 bagger since then right and that's less less than a decade that this has happened and then on the flip side think about a company like microsoft that completely failed to participate in the early phase of the mobile revolution Because of concerns about cannibalizing its existing desktop business, right? It essentially walked away from the next, like a decade of success, uh, because it was so focused on something that it essentially had a monopoly on, and the stock went sideways for a decade as a result, right? It was very, (laughs) it was a very challenging period for. For long-term investors in Microsoft, and now you know, obviously with uh, with uh, Natayan, I think is the new CEO, um, uh, again a visionary who's come in and said, "We have this is this is where the market's going to be, and this is where we need to be with their shift into the cloud." Um, and it's been tr- again transformative for for that business. So you see clear parallels with how being willing to walk away from what you what you've what's been successful in the past because it's not necessarily what's going to be successful going forward is so valuable.
0: Yeah, I think one last point that that I'll hit is just how important leadership is. You've heard us talk about the process, we've heard us you've heard us talk about recruiting and how important that is. And all that comes down to the leader at the end of the day. I think in college football, you see great examples of this. You can have a great brand, uh, but if you don't have the right coach in the job, then maybe you won't have success. A great example of that's Notre Dame, right? It's been a long period of time where Notre Dame has still been a blue blood program, but but has struggled uh, to get the coaches the coaches necessary uh, to have the success that they've had historically. Um, And you can see that uh, examples of some businesses, right? When you have a CEO who has historically led uh, the organization, brought it to the heights um, that it reached, when that person leaves, it can be difficult to maintain that level of success. So, ignore leadership at your peril. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's
1: no doubt about that whatsoever.
0: Okay. So, so moving on from the lessons we learned uh, in investing about college football, and I, I think there's a lot of them. I, I think in any uh, pursuit where there's lots of people all trying to compete, playing by the same rules, Uh, it's going to evolve over time, there's going to be a metagame aspect, and the ability to adapt um, over time is going to determine uh, your success or failure. We look at college football today, we're recording this on July 17th. There's a lot of question marks around what happens uh, with the season. We've seen a number of leagues already come out and cancel their season, the Ivy League and the Patriot League, most notable among those. And then we have some other Uh, Some other conferences that have pledged to play only non-conference games, that being the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and the ACC. Jason, uh, we're still a number of weeks uh, away from what would be the beginning of the college football season. Are you optimistic that we will end up playing uh, by the time the beginning of September comes around?
1: Absolutely not. Yeah, I I think uh, today again. This I know. This is a couple. This is maybe several weeks. Uh, prior to when you're going to be listening to this out there, folks, but uh, today I think there were 77,000 COVID-19 cases, the most uh, so far in the U.S. On a world basis, it was like a quarter million new cases worldwide. Uh, the most single day worldwide uh, death death counts of starting to go up. Uh, ICUs are filling up. I think I think there's real real serious concern, um, and maybe less so for the players, right? So you think about it from the perspective of these student athletes. They're young they're healthy uh, you know, with caveat that you know there, there are some that have you know uh, health you know underlying conditions that put them at risk but I think as a general group you know these these are folks that that in general would probably be either asymptomatic uh, or emerge with with no you know long-term consequences right um, but you think about the coaches you think about the administrators you think about the I th- the SEC is is a good example of like the extreme end. You know Athens, Georgia. You know the the number of people that show up in Athens every Saturday uh, for home games more than doubles the size of the city. You know more people show up on game day they can actually fit in the stadium. So you know you're creating these very high risk pools of people. Alcohols involved, emotions are involved. Um, that I think that one of the challenges that they have to consider is even if they're holding games. How do you keep people from just showing up in the town just to be there? Because a lot of people do that with with college football,
0: right? And it's worth mentioning, you know, listeners, you're in the future. You might you might know stuff that that we don't know yet. So this is a little bit of a pre mortem uh, um, of what might happen. So as we look out, whether or not the season the season uh, goes forward in a reduced capacity or not, we're in a situation today uh, with 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 some of these big leagues like the Pac-12 and Big Ten canceling non conference games. That, that there are implications for, for smaller programs that are already already underway. Uh, so you'll, you'll hear these every year. A big program like Alabama will get criticized for, for playing, say, a smaller school, say, like Southern Miss or Middle Tennessee State, uh, a school from a smaller conference. But I think it's important to note that uh, without playing those games, often th- those smaller conference schools will get a payout in excess of a million dollars to come play in that football game, which will then uh, go to fund. Athletic programs, whether that's the football program at the university in question or other smaller sports, and uh, without these games being played, this is certainly going to have uh, some impact on the ability of smaller universities to maintain their sports program. Even even today, we've seen a number of uh, of schools cancel uh, sports, whether it's track and field, swimming, uh, that sort of thing. Jason, what what do you think if we do see the loss of Athletics programs at some of these smaller universities. What do we lose as a country?
1: Well, I think you know you and I. Something you and I have talked about a lot is that's. I mean, sports are part of our as are part of American culture, right? I think, I think, I think the majority of Americans uh, follow w- one sport, if if even just at a casual level, and a plurality of Americans. Uh, would call themselves sports fans, right? So, I think it's, this is such a, it's, it's a really important part of American culture, right? So, obviously, we're going to focus a little bit on the money and the finance side of it, because a lot of this is about money, but there's more to it, right? I think the reality is that we need, we need, especially in a time like this, we need sports. I think sports is important. I think it gives us something to rally around. I think it gives us something to complain about. I think it gives us something to distract us. And I think those are things that are, are really important and healthy uh, that can help move move through this obviously within balancing out the very serious threats to people's lives and long-term health and it makes it hard to do but i think it's just it's it's a real it's a real tough situation right i mean with no sports all we got is the election to pay attention to right <sighs> that's not even funny <laughs> yeah i'm gonna um, i'm gonna cry a little bit
0: <laughs> yeah when we look to the, the the financial impact i think that that's more the focus of this show and it, it could be uh, significant so we've seen some numbers come out uh, from Tuscaloosa Alabama obviously a very significant college football town that the city projects that if the college football season were to be canceled the season would lose this excuse me the city would lose somewhere on the order of two billion dollars in revenue is what the estimates say. and Obviously, that's a massive impact uh, for the city. You lose lose $10 billion in revenue, you're probably looking um, at some layoffs in the city government and that sort of thing. But it's worth noting that when you're talking about city tax revenue of $2 billion, the city is only bringing in some percentage of, of the total revenue being generated in the city via sales tax and that. So, I think we can comfortably estimate that the impact on the city from a revenue point of view, not just the government, but the city overall, is somewhere on the order of $20 billion, right? Somewhere on the order of, you know, between 10 and $20 billion, depending on what the tax rate is. And so if you extrapolate that out, not just to Tuscaloosa, which is a significant college town, but to Auburn, Alabama, to Athens, Georgia, like you mentioned, Jason, Columbus, Ohio, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Knoxville, what? Tennessee what what is the potential impact on small business here can we, can we
1: estimate that in, the, in any kind of reasonable way it's it's enormous i think you know i, I spent my or the early part of my uh, post college career in retail management and the friday after thanksgiving is historically called black friday because it's the, the it's the beginning of the period when many many consumer retail Companies shift from losing money to moving into a profitable time of the year for them. So basically, you have a month for these companies, right, between between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where they make you know an enormous amount of their sales. And I think you carry that over to uh, a small college, a small a a small town college business, uh, a small restaurant. Uh, Maybe they do a lot of catering. Uh, They have six or seven Saturdays uh, in the fall every year that are enormously important to their ability to stay open and to make a living the 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 rest of the year. I, I think it's really hard to hard to completely put a number to that, but I would say the, these are these are towns that they could see, you know, 15 or 20% of their of their restaurants that are already struggling. Let's remember too, most of these places are struggling to stay open right now as it is just because of COVID-19. So I think this is the kind of thing that could permanently put a large number of these businesses thousands of them out of business.
0: Right. Sniffing implications, and of course, that leaves, that leaves a, a vacuum where you would imagine uh, some larger businesses are going to fill the gap. I'm sure that changes the culture in some of these college towns.
1: It absolutely does. Uh, there's a couple of the restaurant, uh, large national restaurant associations that are already saying that a quarter of the restaurants in the country are going to close you know, within a year, and the vast majority of those are going to be small you know they're going to be small individual or small local chains, uh, not the big chains. So again, it's just another case of the the rich getting richer and the, you know, the small small business facing you know even a bigger hurdle to success.
0: And last thing, Jason, as we look out past this individual season, this individual, you know, what's going on with the pandemic, and look out longer term. We talked about earlier uh, this idea that we could lose some athletics programs per. Permanently, some of these smaller sports, track and field, et cetera, particularly at smaller colleges. Do you see this longer term impacting the willingness of folks to attend college, as as sports are a significant part of, of the college experience for some folks?
1: You know, I think I think the 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 college the college experience is already facing an enormous challenge, and it's kind of ripe for for disruption because of the the enormous expense that more and more people are deciding that that additional cost does not. Provide the potential upside in terms of higher earnings, right? So I think there's already a lot of challenges that the the entire <clears throat> higher education ecosystem is facing, uh, but and I think it's 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 worrying because one of the healthier parts of it in terms of financial success is is college is college sports. Um, you know, I think if uh, a lot, of, I think the average layperson doesn't really fully understand where the money comes from, how it's allocated, and who pays for what. And the reality is that you think about these coaches that make millions of dollars, that are in a lot of times the most highly paid person in the state, the highest paid state employee. Their money comes from private donors, right? That donate in large sums of money, and then there's these big sports, uh, the the TV deals that are pumping in large amounts of money. Those don't just go to pay for the football program or the basketball program that are these revenue generators. That's that's the money that pays for the scholarship for the 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 golf players and the and the swimming and the diving programs and a lot of these what they call non-revenue sports that simply don't provide enough cash on their own through donations or or, or other sources or ticket sales or that sort of thing to pay the bills. So so the risk that this puts on uh, the NCAA they had this this. This marketing program a number of years ago that you know 99% of uh, NCAA uh, student athletes don't go pro right they go pro in something else and so so there's an enormous amount of that cash that does flow back to 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 educate and pay for for students that that end up going pro as whatever they graduated from college to do so I think it certainly presents a risk but again my my thoughts are if you fast forward out five years. And I think we're going to get past this, I think, because it is so steeped in our culture as as a society that I'm optimistic. Uh, this, the next year is going to be really, it's going to be tough, right? It's going to be tough and some hard decisions are going to be made and some people are going to lose their jobs. Um, Middle class people are going to lose their jobs uh, simply because they work at a university that's not going to get that million and a half dollar um, <coughs> check from the University of Georgia because they didn't have that football game that they had been planning on. So I think this is
0: another one of, the, one of these things to, to keep in mind as, as we think about investing and how we can bring this around to the mindset of an investor, is how quickly things can change. I remember six months ago, if you'd have told me that you had an investment in uh, college residential real estate property, that would have been among the most safe rents um, on the face of the planet. Today, looking a lot more uncertain, does this teach us any lessons about just the volatility and the unpredictability of what can happen in the market, and how
1: on your toes you need to be as an investor. Well, what's the saying? You know, risks everything that you don't know, right? That's I think that's what it comes back to. And I can give I can actually give a a tangible example of that of that college real estate thing. There's uh so Rich Uncles is one of the crowd funded real estate websites, and they have a REIT real estate investment trust that you can invest in directly through them. And if a year ago somebody had to have asked me, so I'm looking at this REIT, and they own. A Starbucks on a university campus, and they own a large stake in an apartment complex on a university campus, and they own a smaller stake in another apartment complex on a university campus, and they also they own a Gold's Gym, um, and they use like 55 or 60 percent debt to assets, like that's that's pretty low leverage rate. So what do you think, Jason? Do you think that's that's safe? A year ago, I would have said. Hell yeah, that's that's pretty. I mean, that's great assets. It should have predictable cash flows, and it's a moderate level of of leverage, and it's worth thirty two cents a share today. Um, that it's it's been absolutely destroyed by this black swan, and yeah. So there's a, there's a real lesson there that even things that might look quite stable and quite low risk. Can can still turn out to be far more risky than than you expected, and that's and that's why you have to spread your your money around, so you're exposed to different risk profiles and and different things that you might not expect, right? So that's the that's the takeaway for me.
0: Yeah, I mean maybe maybe I can bring this around to to one last lesson that college football can teach me about investing, and that's that sometimes weird things happen, and a, a perfect example uh, is the Iron Bowl. This past year, Alabama lost 48 to 45 in that game, lost by three points. And the difference in that game was at the end of the first half, uh, there was a, a stoppage in play. Uh, hey, which, Nick, which, hey Nick, what's the Iron Bowl? The Iron Bowl is Alabama is, is the biggest rivalry in college football. Alabama uh, versus Auburn played every year. Eh, uh, college <laughs> football, maybe the state of Alabama. Nah. wait So anyway, last year, last year's <laughs> Iron Bowl is just is just one of those examples of how how funny things can happen that they're super unpredictable. It ended up being a three point game, a one field goal game, and the difference in the game was at the end of the first half. Uh, there there was a. a some funkiness with the clock, and and the, the the officials did a review, put one second back on the clock, and Auburn was able able to kick a field goal, and that was the difference in the game. And uh, sometimes funny things happen. It was a, a quirk of the rules that added one second to, to be put on the clock, allowed the clock to be stopped in a way that never would have happened in the normal flow of play, and that ended up being the difference in the game. And I think, in a way, that that's similar to what happened with coronavirus. I mean, it took a lot of things to line up and go wrong for us at the exact right time uh, in order for the set of circumstances that would allow for, for some of these negative adverse effects to happen and you can't plan for these things but sometimes they happen to you and you have to adapt with them and, and you know roll with the punches my
1: biggest my biggest takeaway is you can't let a bad season ruin the rest of your career right and as an investor it's so easy to get caught up in you know you you, you go back to March you know late March the market, had f- fallen 34% in like 32 days, right? It was the fastest hardest market crash in history. And then 3 months later, you know, the markets almost fully recovered from where it was at the start of the year. It's still down like 8 or 9% from the peak. But, you know, you you put that you layer that over where we are now and People are looking at the other side of the coin. They're like, "This is crazy. The market's overvalued." Blah blah. And There's everybody's so focusing on right now with their blinders and so caught up in this season, they're potentially risking risking their career, their long term ability to deliver meaningful returns by sitting on the sideline or selling, you know, trading your best player because you think he's not gonna he's not gonna have another good year, right? It's like s- selling a stock on valuation. But you know it's still a great company and it should have another great 10 or 20 years left. right? So, I think it's too easy to get caught up in the now. And that's what goes back to the temperament, focusing on process over outcome, because especially process over outcome can keep you from making big mistakes that seem smart right now, but hurt you in the long-term, and uh, keep keep you focusing on what is going to deliver the best returns over time.
0: I couldn't put it better myself, Jason. I hope all the listeners enjoyed uh, this mix of college football talk and investing, And and I hope this reminds folks that you can learn lessons that are applicable in investing in all parts of your life if you just look around and pay attention. Jason, thanks for hopping on the podcast, as always. This was a really good time, good show. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Heather Horton, her work behind the glass for Jason Hall. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on. And go, dogs.